Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health, market research, and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today is a bonus episode brought to you in partnership with New Health. New Health, spelled N-Y-O-O, provides strategic and advisory support to women's health companies and investors. New hosts this awesome monthly virtual series called What's New, where they bring together experts and have engaging, honest, and educational conversations about women's health. And now, y'all, you know I attend a lot of events, but when I joined the What's New event on Pelvic Health, I was blown away. The session was so informative, super engaging, and at a certain point, I said, this has to be a conversation that we share on the Femtech Focus podcast. So in this episode, you will hear a phenomenal panel conversation featuring Kareen Carmi, CEO and co-founder of Origin, Somi Javed, founder and chief medical officer from HerMD, Rachel Rubin, urologist and sexual medicine specialist, and Emma Schmidt, a doctor in clinical sexology. Special thanks to Priya Bathija, CEO of New Health, for allowing us to share this recording. We are so grateful that we're able to continue this panel once again, give it another second life. And I hope you listeners enjoy it as much as I did. Learn about new by joining their events at newhealth.com. That's N-Y-O-O health.com. And if you're listening on Spotify, go ahead and drop us a note in the Q&A feature of the episode. What was the most surprising thing you learned in this? episode. We want to hear from you. What was the most surprising? Join our Slack channel to continue the conversation. You can join us there free at femhealthinsights.com. Enjoy the episode. And now um, we'd like to welcome our speakers. Um, The first is Kareen Carmi, who is CEO and co-founder of Origin. Um, Somi Javed, founder and chief medical officer of HerMD. Uh, Rachel Rubin, a urologist and sexual medicine specialist. And Emma Schmidt, a doctor in clinical sexology. Thank you all so much for joining us today and being a part of this conversation where we dispel myths and um, get to the bottom of what we should know about our bodies that we don't know already. Um, so I would just like to start um, by having each of you tell us a little bit more about yourselves, um, the work that you're leading, and sort of what you're advocating for in the women's health space. And I'll just go in order of how I see you on my screen. Um, so Somi, I'll start with you. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having us. And to my friends, thank you for all saying yes. Um, I feel so blessed to uh have you all as colleagues and friends. So I'm a board certified OBGYN. I've been practicing for almost 20 years now. I um, saw a huge need for menopause and sexual health care. And so uh, founded uh, HerMD, 
um, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and slowly saw that women were coming from 35 states and three countries to get menopause and sexual health care uh, in an insurance-based system. Um, and we are now opening our fifth location um, in New Jersey. And so that is what I do for a living. And HerMD was founded on the core principles of education, advocacy, and empowerment, um, and giving women a safe space to address all of their um, sexual health care concerns, their gynecologic concerns, and their menopause concerns. Wonderful. Um, Kareem. Wonderful. And thank you so much for having me and Somi for including me. I'm honored. Uh, my name is Kareem Carmi. I'm the co-founder and CEO at Origin. I am not a clinician and I came into the field of women's and pelvic health through my own experience as a patient. I'm sure like many of us, given the numbers, um, have had experiences with either painful sex or incontinence or prolapse. And unfortunately, I was uh, living with painful sex for nearly a decade before I finally found pelvic floor therapy. And uh, that was in 2018. And Origin uh, was grown from that experience. Uh, and I've now also had a baby. So I know firsthand the challenges of the pelvic floor. Um, we are really trying to build the largest and most clinically um, sound approach to supporting women and people with vaginal anatomy through every stage of life using pelvic floor and really full body PT. It's an incredibly non-invasive approach to solving so many of these issues, although in many, uh, many chances you do need a partner with incredible OBs or your gynecologist. So we do believe in that multidisciplinary approach with a lot of folks on this call too. Um, and we now offer care nationwide. So we have a virtual care platform and we also have clinics now in LA, San Francisco, Austin, and just opened up in Houston. Awesome. Awesome. And I love what both of you are doing in the startup world and how you're growing in such a great way um, at a time where both of your services are really, really needed. Um, Rachel, I'll turn to you now, um, Dr. Rubin, to um, introduce yourself. Yeah, happy to be here and such a huge fan of everybody on this call. Um, I'm Dr. Rachel Rubin. I'm a urologist uh, who did fellowship training in sexual medicine. I take care of all genders for all types of sexual problems. So I do four things. I deal with issues of libido, arousal, orgasm, and pain. I do a ton of pelvic pain, menopause care, hormones for everybody um, who needs it uh, in an evidence-based way. And I'm a big advocate on social media and um, and through an organization called ISWISH, which is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health and the Education Chair. And I'm all about screaming from the rooftops and yelling and making this stuff easy to talk about. I always say I talk about sex like it's high blood pressure and diabetes because that's all it is. And so we have to make the biology and the physiology make sense. And when that makes sense, people are empowered, they're educated, and they get to choose what they do with their bodies. So, so thrilled that we are all very like-minded and can't wait to read that book. Awesome. And now Emma. Hi. So I am Dr. Emma Schmidt. I have a doctor in clinical sexology and also I'm ASEC certified as a certified sex therapist. And um, my story is similar to yours, Carney, where um, whenever my husband and I first got together, we were having vaginismus, sexual pain. We weren't able to have penetration. 
And we were passed around from doctor to doctor, from therapist to therapist. And we thought like, if we're experiencing this, we cannot be the only ones. And so it was a three-year journey before I went to sex therapy school and found out there was this thing called pelvic floor therapy. And actually my challenges were very fixable and treatable. And I thought there is no way like this can continue. And so here in the Cincinnati region, I thought I really want to amp this up and make sure that people have access to quality sexual health care. So I started that um, 12 years ago now, and now we have 20 sex therapists on our team. We have a sex therapy school where we train therapists to become sex therapists so we can have more people um, have access to sex therapy. And we do that through a fee for service with sex therapy and also free service where we get out in the community um, as a part of our mission and trying to provide people with quality sexual health care um, through Q&As, through talks like this. And then we also have a space that we support over in Nepal, Mukti, where we help train their staff in bringing girls out of sex trafficking, knowing that here in America, we don't get sex education and also globally. So we definitely have this local, national and global impact that we're trying to do, normalizing the sexual health conversation, making sure that there's access um, to sexual health care We have four locations in Indiana, Kentucky, and Ohio, and then our Nepal location as well. And we're thankful to be very close to lots of her MDs so that we can have care um, for our clients and passing them to um, a sex medicine doctor as well. So very big in the sex medicine world and working with um, sex therapy and the desire world. So um, it's really cool to see how far we've come in this space. Wonderful. I'm really, I've said it before, I'm truly so excited to have all of you here for this conversation. And to get started, um, as I was looking into all of you um, in preparation for this discussion, um, Kareen, I, I saw your bio on your website, and you mentioned that you are honored to work at the forefront of a major cultural shift to help women feel their best. And I love that description of what you're doing Um, And all of you are on that forefront. So um, can you share a little bit about the why? And some of you did in your introductions, but maybe go a little bit deeper. And why is this so important to you? And Karina, I'll start with you. Yeah. Um, You know, it's interesting. When we started the company and we worked on our mission statement, it took us a while to land on this. But we actually used the phrase that we are on a mission to help our patients feel their best through every stage of life. And it is almost radical to think about, you know, not just recovering or healing from pain, but actually pleasure, right? And I know maybe for everyone on this call, um, especially Emma and Rachel and, you know, Somi as well, like you two are not just in the business of removing the pain, but in helping patients and individuals tap into their pleasure, um, the sensations that we've honestly, and not just in sex, right? Like actually connecting to our bodies and it's taken me a long, long time um, to even realize, you know, my body is not separate from myself, that we are, you know, fully integrated beings. And I, I know this is so California woke or not woke, woo woo. Um, but it's, it's really core to, I think, healing to start to reintegrate. And there are so many reasons why women in particular have been disassociated from their bodies. Obviously, the cultural stigma and shame and the lack of education in, you know, sexual education, but also history of trauma, abuse with the rates that are happening, you know, probably historically, but especially now in this country. Um, And, you know, you have social media where we're othering ourselves all the time. We have a phone in front of our faces and we see ourselves through the the lenses of others. And so I think, you know, we believe at origin that 
healing, and Selma, you said this so beautifully, is education at its core and its first. Like if we don't understand ourselves, if we can't connect to ourselves, um, that is going to be the limiting factor in our healing journey. And so uh, that's that's why I'm so passionate about it, because I do think that, you know, there's so many non-invasive ways that you can help individuals connect to themselves first and foremost and empower them so that they can hopefully heal on their own over time without the intervention even, you know, of a clinician if needed. Great. Rachel? Why I do what I do or what the origin behind it? Yeah, all of it. Man, you know, this, um, they don't teach us any of this in medical school and they are so, I mean, literally nothing. Our anatomy textbooks don't even have the clitoris and the full anatomy of the clitoris. The word vestibule, vulvar vestibule, which is the part of the body that is probably responsible for the majority of people who have pain with sex is not even a footnote in our anatomy textbooks. And it is what keeps uh, Dr. Javade and I busy uh, all day, every day. And it's incredible how little people know. And so when I teach, when I yell, when I lecture, I talk the same way to uh, patients, as I do to providers, as I do to students, because there is just such a lack of information and knowledge. And it turns out like, um, you know, what I distill down of what I love about my job is I take very educated, very smart, very well, you know, very successful people, but and, and they don't know anything about their bodies, right? They don't know anything about their bodies and their providers don't know anything about their bodies. And so asking the questions and, and trying to say to patients, you know, we don't have all the data, but we're as sure as hell going to try to get it. And we're going to, we're going to, so we are mentoring medical students. We're writing papers. We're doing research projects. We're encouraging femtech to get involved because what's be, what's, we're about 20 years behind, if not more. Um, I'm a urologist. I do men's sexual health. I love men's sexual health. I believe men deserve good sexual health. And even that needs to be improved, but we're 20 years behind on the men's side. And so I take a lot of what I know about men's sexual health and really just do a great job of advocating for my female patients and saying, there's nothing wrong with wanting a good quality of life. You deserve it. And here's how we get it. And here's the evidence about how, why I don't think I'm actually going to hurt you uh, and be able to do this. So anyway, that's, that's my story. Yeah. And I love the point you made about men and women being able to have positive and good sexual health, right? It's not a, we should have it at the expense of them. It is, we all have the right to have it. Um, Somi, I will turn to you next to talk about sort of why women's health and this work that you do is so important. Yeah, so for me, it was recognizing at a very young uh, age in my life that there were too many barriers uh, for women in particular. If you look at lack of research, uh, lack of data, lack of funding, um, lack of access, socioeconomic status, um, race, and women not getting the outcomes that they deserved. Um, I nearly lost my mother when she was only 45 years old due to cardiovascular disease. And everyone's like, well, surely you guys didn't have money. Um, no, we were insured. They were like, surely you lived somewhere remote. We lived in Cleveland, Ohio, the Mecca of cardiovascular care where uh, royalty flies in. But she was 45 years old, presented with left arm pain, uh, shortness of breath, chest pain. And her doctors told her it was too much caffeine that her children were stressing her out. I'm pre-med at Northwestern looking at this EKG going, this is abnormal. Um, and she was just dismissed and ended up, and my mother is alive to this day, thank God, 
Um, but ended up um, with emergent quadruple bypass surgery. And when the surgeon came out, uh, she had a 95% occlusion of the Widowmaker lesion. And he said, if the heart attack would have come, that she would have not survived. And so that was my aha moment that uh, women needed uh, advocacy. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to go into women's healthcare. Fast forward through medical school and residency, where as Dr. Rubin alluded to, didn't learn about clitoral anatomy, didn't learn about female pleasure, didn't learn about any of that stuff, um, but got smacked by our healthcare system where I was forced to see 50 patients a day um, and couldn't remember what I was doing. And finally, I got to the point in my life where I was nearly 40 years old came to my husband and said, I feel like a failure. And he's like, what are you talking about? You have amazing um, reviews and press Ganey scores. Like the hospital was so happy with me. And everyone said, oh my God, you can't change medicine. And I was like, when is the status quo ever changed anything? Never. And so I quit my job, bought a building. And basically it was like field of dreams. Like if you build it, they will come. Um, and... Uh, that is how I found myself on this journey. And I thought I was just going to have this nice little practice in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, but women, when they find, you know, a good hairdresser or a good doctor, they talk. And thankfully, because I had no marketing budget, I did this all on my own. But they started finding me on discussion boards and found that women from 35 states and three countries were coming to Cincinnati, Ohio for menopause and sexual health care. Um, because I wanted to make sure I did it within an insurance-based system. That was very important for me uh, for access. You know, uh, I know that there's other models. It works great for others. But for me, if I was going to take care of, of patients, I wanted to take care of patients from all different backgrounds. Um, and then the other part of the story is when I decided to scale, um, I went into fundraising. And I'm a minority woman um, from Ohio, who was a dinosaur for being an entrepreneur. And those of us who've been fundraising um, know this. I was in my, well into my forties. I was told I had less than a 0.5% of being able to raise capital. And within six weeks, this was the first time I fundraised. Um, we had multiple offers. We were able to fundraise successfully. And so that is how we've gotten to our fifth um, location to increase access for women. So my founding story is my mother, um, truly, and the promise I made to my 21-year-old self, um, but then learning from patients all the gaps um, in the healthcare system. Well, thank you for sharing that story. And I'm so glad your mom is still with us today. Um, and we'll talk more about those gaps in a little bit, but I do want to ask Emma the same question that I've asked all of you. So you touched a little bit on your own story in your introduction. Um, tell us a little bit more and why this work is so important to you. Yeah, so um, to come back to that, one of the things that we started noticing when we were seeing clients were how deeply alone they felt in their situation, not being able to know where to go, that there was even a resource, that there was a name for the thing they were struggling with. And that we would get them at the end of their rope, right? That they had already been passed along and they were just going to test out the water one more time, right? And for them to be at that stage, um, I was like, that cannot happen. We have to get them at the beginning or the middle, or we're even glad that they're even having this conversation, right? Mm -hmm. But when we started to meet with these people, we started to recognize like how 
much it impacts relationship satisfaction, how much it impacts self-esteem and connection to your body, how much it impacts um, everything that you're going through when you think your body's supposed to be working a certain way, when you have this idea of what you've been told you're supposed to be doing and it's not that way, you um, start to feel very lost in yourself, right? And we Mm -hmm. wanted to change the conversation specifically for women and vulva owners. Um, One of the things that I decided to start doing um, is during my um, doctoral program, I did dissertation, a dissertation on this mind-body approach, EMDR, and looking at can EMDR, um, this cognitive type of modality, really change vaginismus, so this tension in the pelvic floor um, and pain in the pelvic floor. And one of the things that we found was actually therapy can solely get rid of certain um, presentations of vaginismus and dyspareunia or pelvic pain, tension in the pelvic floor. And so one of the things that we wanted to keep advocating for was research in this area, right? The reason why people were getting passed along is because there just wasn't a lot of information, especially 12 years ago and especially in the therapy world. And so if we could keep taking steps to helping women feel less alone in this in this area to help relationships um, have better satisfaction, but really specifically for women to have ownership over their body, have be educated about their body. Um, and one of the main culprits that we found is that it's sex education. It comes down to sex education and it comes down to shame. And so um, these women, when we were doing this therapy, what we were finding is when we got rid of the shame and we increased sex education, along with the body connection and understanding how tight does your pelvic floor feel as you're talking about these things, we were able to resolve vaginismus from a cognitive level, which was really, really cool. And the problem then we see is we just need way more sex education. We need way more education about our bodies and how it functions and about pleasure and about relationship satisfaction and about men's health um, and men understanding women's sexual health, especially, you know, when Maddie was talking about the story and what her boyfriend was saying, um, and the messages we get. And so that's the why is, um, it just needs to be different. And in other countries, my husband's from Germany, it is different. And so if we can keep that trajectory going here and it is, it's changing. Um, I think really good things are going to happen for women. Yeah. And you offered sort of the perfect segue into my next question for all of you. Um, and so Maddie read that passage from her book where, the woman clearly had a lot of knowledge gaps in what she knew about her body and how it functioned. And a lot of those were put into her head from her boyfriend, right? So um, we hear things in the world. We hear them from a variety of different people, not just um, partners, boyfriends, spouses. Um, I want to dive into what are some of the things that you've heard in your work or myths that have come across, you know, your desk or your Um, practice room um, that you want to dispel for everyone who is on this call. And Dr. Javed, um, at HerMD, you know, you are filling a much needed gap in that um, sexual health and menopause and knowledge and education. Um, But what's something that we should know that we don't know in one or both of those areas? 
I think one of the myths that women are told or sold by a lot of doctors, even in 2023, apparently I didn't know this, but alcohol is a cure for all sexual pain and dysfunction for women. But, you know, um, drink some wine and you'll be fine. You know what your problem is? Like, these are real life quotes that I'm getting. You know, your problem is, you know why you can't have sex because you didn't have enough vodka before. And so it's always amazing to me that there's still... Um, board certified doctors who are saying these types of things um, to our patients. And so pain is not normal. It's our body's way of communicating that something is wrong and that we should take a biopsychosocial approach, a combination of medication, physical therapy, um, counseling, and finding out what is going on with the patient. And we always tell them that they know their body than better than anybody else. So I think the number one myth that I want to dispel, I mean, providers should know this, but just FYI, uh, alcohol is not an FDA approved medication for sexual pain or sexual disorder in case anyone didn't know that. That is wonderful. And it, you know, it was disheartening when you said that it was board certified physicians that are offering this advice because it shows that this misinformation and disinformation goes just beyond people like me who didn't get a medical degree. Um, it's still sort of being circulated. Um, Kareen, Origin treats a variety of conditions for women from pregnancy pain to painful sex and pelvic organ prolapse. Um, what's something that we don't know that we should from your perspective? You know, one of the things that I think people, well, two things. One, that the pelvic floor or pelvic floor issues are niche is a really big myth. Um, I think it is niche or niche. I actually don't know how to say that word. Someone tell me what is the right pronunciation, but you know, I say niche. Way, it, niche, great. My husband tells me it's niche. I think it's niche. So, you know, we've been told this myth that pelvic health or pelvic floor dysfunction is niche and it's not niche in the sense that, you know, there are so many millions of people, men and women across the U.S. who experience dysfunction every year. Um, mm -hmm. The treatment of those issues is still niche because we have not funded the solution and we've not invested in the research to Rachel's point. Um, so that's one myth. And then I think the second is that there's either this perception sometimes by some of our patients that it's kind of either too late or too early to think about pelvic health. Too late might be, oh, I'm, you know, hitting menopause or um, even, you know, older and I'm now, you know, experiencing osteoporosis or other issues. And, you know, it's quote, too late to start improving my pelvic health um, or maybe too early. I haven't had a kid yet. This isn't an issue. Um, whereas, you know, really it is an entire part of our bodies that like my biceps, which I never worked out with when I was a teen, I'm now like still struggling to do, you know, real weightlifting. Um, the earlier we can start to invest in our own health and especially the health at the center of our core of our, you know, whole body's universe, um, mm -hmm. the better. And we start to see actually more and more patients, especially in um, some of our clinics where there's like athletic centers um, where you might have a teen who's a runner who's already experiencing incontinence or a CrossFit athlete um, or someone who's experiencing endometriosis and related mm -hmm. pain. I would love for patients to start coming in earlier and, and not hopefully waiting until, you know, this feels like it's insurmountable pain. Yeah. And I think women, like the ones we have who have joined us and men, um, knowing that these solutions are available will be a good start to getting um, 
folks in earlier to talk about these things and to work on them. Um, but I do love the comparison to sort of working out your arm muscles and your pelvic floor. Um, Dr. Rubin, you are a board certified urologist and sexual medicine specialist. And I recently read an article where you were cited to in the New York Times, and it was called The Life-Changing Magic of a Urologist. And the author starts the piece by sharing that urologists deal with health problems that arise from two very intimate functions, peeing and sex. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what we should know um, that we may not already know? You cannot get a better headline than the life-changing magic of a urologist. I don't know who I paid off at the New York Times for that <laughs> headline, but I will take it. You know, so what's so fascinating about urologists is, first of all, you got to be funny when you're a penis doctor. You can't take yourself too seriously and you have to have a good sense of humor. But as urologists, we fundamentally care about genitals and quality of life. We deal with prostate issues, urination issues. We deal with prostate cancers, of course, kidney stones, cancers, bladder prostates, all sorts of things. But we deal with erectile dysfunction. We deal with orgasmic dysfunction, premature ejaculation, delayed ejaculation. These are very normal things for urologists to talk about. And urologists are board certified to take care of women. And so it's natural, actually, that urologists should um, help with when it comes to women's sexual health, because we deal with men's sexual health. It's very easy for us to talk about testosterone and libido and hormones and things like that. Now, the problem is only about 10% of practicing urologists are women. And so we have had a really hard time of getting that into sort of all urologists' uh, knowledge. But the urology associations have worked very hard to make it a part of our core curriculum, to make it something that we research, that we have courses on every year, and that we help to educate sort of the masses of urologists. But the crazy thing is, is that doesn't really exist formally in the OBGYN world, which is kind of shocking. Our fellowship in sexual medicine, uh, it's the only fellowship in the country that acknowledges women's sexual health. Health. Now that is changing in 2023, but it has taken until 2023. And so really the, the crazy thing that I would like to share with people is that when you are in the uterus, everyone's genitals look exactly the same. Okay. And then as gender differentiation happens, you literally, the body morphs into a penis or it morphs into a vulva and all the body parts are exactly the same and they're very hormonally sensitive. And so the head of the penis and the head of the clitoris are exactly the same. The body and legs of the clitoris are the same as the body and legs of the penis. It's erectile tissue. It gets hard. It orgasms. In fact, they work exactly the same way. I have never had a man come to see me and say, Dr. Rubin, I've been trying to rub the inside of my thigh for decades, but I cannot orgasm, right? It's close to a penis, but it's not his actual penis. And so how many women come to see us and say, Dr. Rubin, just like that author, that wonderful author just told the story, I'm broken. I can't orgasm from penetration. There's something wrong with me. Well, the vagina is close to the clitoris, but it's not the actual clitoris. And so again, what we teach people is their own body parts. We give them language. We give everybody a mirror. And as we're examining them, we say, it's not just this is your vulva. It's this is your labia majora. This is your labia minora. This is your clitoral hood. This is the head of your clitoris. Did you know it goes all the way down to your butt bones? You know, your clitoris is this huge structure. Uh, this is your vulvar vestibule, which is actually bladder or urinary tissue, which is why so 
many, which is very hormonally sensitive, which is why so many women have pain with penetration, especially with uh, different hormonal treatments or menopausal symptoms. And so it's by educating women on their own body. And it doesn't matter whether the person's 16 in my office or 98 in my office, everyone is like, I didn't know that. Wait, that's that, that. And it's so empowering and wonderful. And I think, Rachel, you commented on this too. It's not just educating the patient. It's why you and I are involved in research because you picked on OBGYN. So you started and you know, I love you, but yes, like it's so embarrassing for me. I think the statistic is less than 20% of OBGYNs. I mean, this is what we do. We don't even have to learn male anatomy like you and less than 20% of us are trained in sexual health care. It's, it's crazy. And there's not enough research and data. And so I love that Dr. Rubin's involved in teaching medical students and clinical research and the same thing at her MD. I was like, I have to fix this paradigm. We educate all of our patients. Um, we have screens where they can look at their anatomy. So we teach them all of that. But we're also involved in clinical research trials and we're publishing our data. And then we've developed something called HerMD University so that 100% of HerMD providers are trained in both menopause and sexual health care because we couldn't have the educational paradigm of our company and of our healthcare just be externally facing patients. We had to make sure that our own providers um, felt comfortable because I know that all of us on this call believe that sexual health care is health care. And talking about a vagina or a penis should be no different than talking about your ear or your nose or your eyes, right? It's anatomy. It's not dirty. There's no shame or um, taboo or there shouldn't be. And so I think that's the other um, component that we really need to discuss is not only teaching um, patients, but also our colleagues and those of, who are coming up behind us who are in medical school or you know whatever they decide to do, whether they want to be PTs or counselors, um, we have to teach this generation and the next generations. Um, otherwise, we're not going to move the needle in, and in healthcare. And this is and this is where social media is actually changing the world because of people like Dr. Jovade, because of, of organizations and people loud on social media because the med students are all watching. They're all watching, and while they go through their curriculums, they're like, what the hell? Why didn't I learn this? Why is my curriculum? And they are angry. They are mad. They are watching us. They're following us. And they're seeing what we do. And it is so deliciously hopeful and so wonderful um, to know that they are all going to go into different fields because no one owns sexual medicine, right? You cannot. Neurologists need to know about sexual medicine. Oncologists need to know about sexual medicine. All mental health providers need to know about sexual medicine. I mean, Emma can tell you how many couples therapists are out there that actually won't talk about sex, right? And, and and it's kind of bananas to think about. Cardiologists like need to know it's the number one women, you know, pillar yeah. uh, of women. And I had a patient who had a heart attack and the cardiologist didn't take her off her hormone therapy. I was like, excuse me, did they ask you? Um, I think we all need to know about this because otherwise we can truly harm patients. Yeah. And I can tell you that in just what you said, I learned so much that I didn't know. And I, I'd like to think I know a lot, but apparently I don't. So there is so much. And I just have one quick question before I turn to Emma, but when you talk about education and you talk about the younger generation, seeing this and seeing it on social media and questioning why it wasn't part of their education, how do they take that out into the real world where they're working with a lot of physicians that 
haven't been trained in this way? Like, how's that, how's that going? Well, I'll tell you a story. So um, there is a woman who shadowed me during her pre-med year and she's learned all about sexual medicine. She was volunteering at Planned Parenthood and and, uh, very interested in bioethics. And she started medical school in Chicago. And she said, I'm not going to learn any of this in Chicago. And so she organized and made an entire organization and she gathered all of these Chicago med students from every Chicago med school. And she put on, they, they have a board, they have edgy, they have like a whole board with like 80 people on it. And they do every year, they do a conference where they bring in the world's leading experts because we're all here being like, what do you need? We're here to show up and help. Yeah. And every year they bring in world's leading experts in the topic and they do yeah. webinars throughout the year. And it is incredible. And medical students choose to come to this on their free time and learn about it. And so they are not, they just uh, were publishing a paper right now on the curriculums. They went in, they're doing clinical research by going in and saying and shaming their med schools to being like, look, there is literally nothing about women's sexual health in your curriculum. And so we're working on it from multiple different angles, but these students, they are not having it. And it is so wonderful to watch. We're watching the same thing. And because of the student driven demand, We have local universities where we have brick and mortar, where we are now formalizing partnerships. And you wouldn't think that. You'd think that they would go to the academic or the university centers, which I also practiced and and trained in. Um, But they're coming to a VC-backed, multi-site, like, you know, we were pish-poshed as not serious medicine. And now they recognize that we're evidence-based, peer-reviewed. And so we're formalizing partnerships with um, even universities, not even medical schools yet, but undergraduate universities for people who want to go into uh, women's healthcare, who are going to be working with her MDs so we can start with them. But this was driven by the students. I've been on podcasts for med schools. I mean, they're reaching out to us. I mean, I'm sure it's happened yeah. to all of us on yeah. social media. They want to learn. They're not getting it at their local institution. So they're like, we're going to find it and we're not going to take no for an answer. And it's been a big problem because medicine, the way it is, you just heard you had to see 50 patients a day. You have to do it in the insurance models and all of these things. Like when I tried to get, when I did my fellowship, I tried to get a job in the, in the like regular model. And I kept getting told, you won't make us enough money fast enough. You won't be productive enough. You will not be successful in doing this. And I, I, I had no choice, but to sort of figure out how to do it a different way. And so we actually need, um, we need resources and fellowships. We need resources to change medicine and to do it differently because it's in, really, it's really a broken system. Yeah, it is. It is. And um, Emma, I want to turn to you. But before I do, um, everyone who's in the audience, please get your questions ready. Um, Put them in the chat or in the Q&A box. We will take them from either spot. Um, And so, Emma, I do want to give you a chance to tell us a little bit more about what we should know about our bodies that we don't. Um, And I personally have never met a sexologist. Um, So telling us a little bit more about what you're doing and how that is helping would be really helpful as well. Yeah. Um, Just to back up what um, Somi and Dr. Rubin were saying too, whenever I was in my university, we were actually asked and told that we were not allowed to talk about sexual health with our clients. And I would get reprimanded because my videos, um, you would have to record videos of doing therapy. And we would have premarital uh, counseling, couples counseling. And so many people left, graduated saying like, there's no way I could do what you're trying to do. I I had to go to a separate school 
to try and get sex education as a therapist. And so that's why when you're looking for a doctor too and a therapist, you have to really ask questions around their training, around what they do, because just like with OBs, you assume that they're sex medicine trained. You assume that your couples therapist also is sex therapist trained and they're not, and sometimes are very uncomfortable and will provide information that is just not helpful and sometimes harmful for the, the client. So that is something that's important for a client, when they're seeking out someone, um, it's important that you ask questions around their specialization too. But one, uh, so a sexologist, it's really um, the study of sex. And so I, one of the things, whenever I started out, I wanted to research vaginismus, um, which is now part of genital pelvic pain and penetration disorder, um, because there just wasn't a lot out there for therapy. There is um, more now. And so, um, so the study of sex, but also in combination as a sex therapist, then I can use that in practice. So um, it's counseling, um, but specialized in talking about sex. So we do a lot of um, individual couples, different types of relationships, um, non-binary type of experiences and relationships where we talk about communication challenges around sex, um, desire discrepancies, infidelity, trauma, um, wanting to spice up your sex life. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions is around desire. And I think it's, um, we talk about desire in almost all of our sessions. And that is, is that society has groomed us to believe that if someone has lower sexual desire than their partner, they're the problem in the relationship. Mm-hmm. When in reality, a hundred percent of relationships have desire discrepancy. There's no one that has the same level of desire. And so when an individual and a couple or a relationship has a lower desire, they are seen as the problem and they need to figure out how to get on the level of the higher desire person. And one of the things that we, uh, education-wise that we want to teach people is that there's so many, I mean, it's one of the most dynamic situations, not even a condition, um, because it's a human experience is desire and, um, lower desire or high desire or just desire in general. And, um, So one of the things that we just have to look at and educate is that desire can be experienced in different ways, whether that's responsive desire or spontaneous desire. So we think of um, spontaneous desire as you walk in the room and you say like, hey, do you want to have sex? Like, I'm ready. Um, Usually that comes in the form of more of the male partner, um, where if you're a female partner, you might need more of a responsive desire, meaning um, you want your back rubbed or you want to have quality time and talk about your day. You want to feel like um, you have engagement from your partner. And then you start to think like, wow, they really care about me. They want to be with me. There's intimacy. So like knowing and being known, maybe there's emotional intimacy um, where we connected. There's a response there. Now my body is starting to feel aroused Um, Mm -hmm. for me to have desire. So a lot of time with um, vulva owners and women identifying people, there are, um, uh, they need to have arousal, meaning your body feels it first before the desire, which is I want to have sex. Um, The other piece with desire is that in our mind, we are part of this culture where women are in this giver syndrome, this human giver syndrome, where my body and myself is for the pleasure of other people and not myself. And I give to everyone and everybody, and that's supposed to be my job. And what happens in the brain is that it literally starts to turn the volume off on desire and the way that that functions in our brain and turns up the volume on cortisol. So like the stress hormone 
in our amygdala, which is like fight, flight, or freeze. And so we're literally as women just surviving. And so if you're in the forest and you're trying to run away from a bear because you're surviving and your fight, flight, freeze is coming on, you're not going to also say like, let me get lubricated and go masturbate by the tree real fast. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's just not going to happen. And so desire um, is complex. And just because you have maybe lower desire than your partner could mean that you're burnt out, that you um, it's just like shut off in your brain. And also could mean that you actually just experience desire different than your partner. But just because you're the lower desire person doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. You're just having a human experience. Yeah, that I... There's so much there that I need to like unpack mentally because I I never thought about that or thought about desire discrepancy before. And I think that probably is a very common problem when people show up um, to talk with you. So we do have one question in the Q&A, but Emma, how many of you exist in the country? Like how many people like you that have the combination of experiences that you have are there? Are you a unicorn? I mean, yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, am I trying to change the system? Yes. Uh, are there 2000 certified sex therapists um, out of all mental health therapists? Yes. So if you take all of the mental health therapy that's out there, 2000 are sex therapists um, that are certified sex therapists. So Um, It's not very many. And so what we wanted to do is because we knew that when people graduate, they have a financial obligation to pay back their school. And so people didn't then want to go and get certified or get, oh, I love it so much, uh, get um, trained as a sex therapist. And that's why we wanted to provide free education um, around sex therapy and develop this school so that therapists, general therapists could also get trained to provide more access and to start increasing the sex therapy field too. So um, we're really excited about trying to, to grow that across the, the country. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I'll start with the first question in the Q&A box. And um, I know all of you are not here to provide medical advice. So just answer to the best of your abilities. But the first question is, I'm in pelvic therapy now, but at the age of 69, I have no desire and very painful sex. And I feel sorry that I cannot please him. Any thoughts to offer? Well, that makes me sad that her first thought is that she wants to please him because we think that that's why there's such a disparity in women's sexual health care and so many more options for men. So when I talk to patients, the you know, I've used Emma for so many of my patients for the counseling piece. So before I started, obviously a thorough history and physical understanding your medications, your other health conditions, what's going on. And then I would want to get you in with counseling first to understand why you are prioritizing his needs over your own desire. Um, And then there are FDA approved medications. Most women know what Viagra is and Cialis is, but they don't know about Addy or Vilesi, which are FDA approved non-hormonal options to treat low libido or HSDD. Um, So would definitely talk to her about that as part of a whole care paradigm. And then also understanding if she's in pelvic floor you know, physical therapy, what's working, what's not working. Is she still having pain? Does she need to add the elixir of life? Dr. Rubin loves, you know, vaginal estrogen. Uh, Yes, exactly. You know, because sometimes moisturizers, lubricants are just not enough. And so really 
you can't just usually solve it with a singular approach. It's that multidisciplinary approach. So that's why I rely on experts like Dr. Rubin and Emma and Kareen, because it, it takes all of us together um, to truly solve the problem. But I am amazed at how many of my colleagues do not offer any of the FDA approved medications. Oh, and there's also, I forgot about it, testosterone. Like testosterone, there's not an FDA approved um, testosterone only treatment option yet, but I hear, and if you disagree with me, Dr. Rubin, let me know, but there are gonna be clinical trials with a testosterone patch this year uh, for women. But there are other ways to get testosterone um, from qualified uh, professionals who are trained in prescribing testosterone for women, um, and it can help with low desire. And I'll also add to, um, with that, like with it being biopsychosocial piece, like with the pain as well, one of the things that we've noticed is um, there was a research that just came out that showed if you want and it feels loving for you to provide um, sex and to have sex with your partner, your satisfaction and how you view your relationship goes up. But if it feels like obligatory sex, then it feels like I, um, I'm i going to regret this and that it feels like it's a chore, mm-hmm. right? And so if it feels like I'm doing this out of love, that I want to connect with my partner, but I want to want sex and I just don't, one of the things that we'll do, like as someone is experiencing and trying to um, recover and go through working with pelvic floor um, around their pain or vaginismus is to do full body explorations um, around their erogenous zones. So um, one, when there's pain there, right, it turns off desire. Nobody wants to feel desire and pain. I mean, some people do, but like it has to be intentional, right? And so if you um, slow everything down and have a self-exploration, if that's something that you feel like um, feels consensual to you and something that would feel interesting, and that looks like um, having you be fully naked and your partner be fully naked and him or her, whatever your partner is, to explore um, with the intention of getting to know your body. So I'm I'm rubbing on uh, my partner's neck and I've realized that like, oh, I didn't know that there was a freckle there. That's really cute. Or I'm noticing how their skin is really smooth or I'm noticing that there's calluses on their hands and noticing how hard they're working. Um, where do I start to notice that there's more nerve endings? So my erogenous zones, there's three different levels. Um, and some levels have, so my nose might not have many, but my neck might have higher erogenous zones. And so if my pelvic floor isn't working properly and like is, um, in, uh, is getting work done, we'll just call it like that. You can actually experience more heightened arousal spots on other parts of your body that can feel really connecting to. So intimacy is all about knowing and being known. So if you can try and connect with your partner in other intimate ways, I wonder if, that can feel um, a way of connection when your pelvic floor might not be working like you want it to. Yeah. Karina or Dr. Rubin, do you want to add anything to that question? I will just add a plug for how important hormones are to genital tissue. And um, it's actually really important for urinary tissue. And you may not put it together, but the same thing that is causing you to have pain with sex at 69 is actually the same thing that's causing you to get up at night to pee. Your urinary frequency, your urinary urgency, sometimes your leakage when you really got to go. And so there's bladder issues 
that happen from a lack of hormone to the tissues. And when the tissue is unhappy and irritated, the muscles that surround the tissue get unhappy and irritated, which leads, I don't know about you, but I don't put my hand on a hot stove very often, right? Because my body pulls away. And so if you're, um, if you're having pain and irritation, uh, the muscles of the pelvic floor are going to pull away and create tightness, which can lead to constipation. So actually your constipation may be because of a lack of local hormones to the vaginal and bladder tissue. And so local vaginal hormones are pretty much safe for every human on earth to take. And I would argue that it is safe for everybody on earth to take. And so the only patient where we should have a sidebar conversation, I could convince you, is someone who's on an aromatase inhibitor for breast cancer. Pretty much everyone else, history of blood clots, family history of breast cancer, current history of breast cancer, like pretty much everyone uh, with a vagina can uh, and should be on vaginal hormones if they're in menopause, which is usually, I would say, even before menopause for some, you know, over 45. And so what happens, it's like moisturizing your face. If you don't do it, it won't work. Wearing your seatbelt. You can't say, well, I wore my seatbelt for 50 years. I don't have to do it anymore. You still have to wear your seatbelt. And so local vaginal hormones is a twice weekly therapy often for life. And so if you're a 98-year-old great-grandma in the nursing home and you get a urinary tract infection, vaginal hormones will prevent future urinary tract infections. So it's kind of like Viagra and that improves arousal, orgasm, lubrication, satisfaction, but it prevents urinary tract infections. It fixes urinary frequency and urgency. It helps with pelvic pain. It's magic. It's actually magic. And a tube of estrogen cream can cost $20 with a good RX coupon and last you for two and a half months. So it's now affordable thanks to the advocacy work that people on this call, you know, really help to lead. And so it's, it's just really important to know that there's often a hormonal connection and, you know, for libido too, there's often Dr. Javet talked about testosterone, which again, there's a hormonal connection. Um, there is a biological basis for sexual health and the solutions are biopsychosocial, right? They're biopsychosocial. So, um, that's all I have to add. And I'm, I'm, um, I'm obviously very passionate about it. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. Kareen, do you have anything quickly to add or, or we can go to other questions? Well, I'm just taking notes, you know, for, for my own features, but no, I, I really appreciate what everyone is saying. And I think maybe just on a, a different note, you know, it can be overwhelming, I think, to think about all the things we have to do as individuals, as patients to navigate our own, you know, desires and the challenges. And just if you're experiencing that moment of like, okay, exhaustion with the healthcare system, it's also okay to take the beat and know that these tools are here for you whenever you're ready. And if the providers you're working with in whatever market you're in, you're not feeling heard, like there are other folks available. There's apps like Coral and Rosie that are also other entry points into getting help. So just know that wherever you are in your journey, even if you're like, I am just so sick of even thinking about this, like it is okay. And that this is not going anywhere. If anything, um, it's only going to get, you know, it will only improve the number of resources you're going to have. Yeah. Thank you. That yes. It is. It isn't going anywhere. Conversation, talk to your partner about it. See, like, what do I like? Um, if this isn't working, how do you actually experience pleasure? Sometimes we assume what our partner wants and doesn't want. And um, that's actually not the narrative that's actually happening in their mind. And so being able to sit down and ask questions about what do you want? What do you not want? What do you like? Um, what can we do outside of this that would feel really connecting to you um, as well, I think is a really important uh, first step. Yeah. 
Agree. Um, okay, let's. We have three three questions and ten minutes, so I'll try to divide these ones up based on who who can answer them, so that we make sure we get to all three of them. Um, but the next one is for those of you with businesses businesses or practices in states that have taken a very restrictive approach to women's health. Has that had an impact on your business or any future plans? Um, maybe Karine, I'll start start with you because you're nationwide now, and then Somi, I know you're in some states with limitations. Yes. Um, so there's obviously an assault on reproductive health and women's health in many, many states and across the country right now. And that is not limiting where we are going. Um, in part, it's actually fueling our desire to be in those places and to continue to provide access to resources, especially when um, you know other resources are going to be limited. Um, but I will say that even before what's happened in the last couple of years uh, with abortion access, what we were up against, um, even just to put this in context, is that there are no specific CPT codes. So when insurance is billed around PT, there are no special codes around pelvic floor therapy. And so there's not even an acknowledgement within the insurance ecosystem that this is a specialization. Even in PT school, there's you know just the beginnings of the specialization on the Academy of um, Pelvic Health, but there's not a track that is required for um, that education. And so what we've had to do in working with insurance in particular is actually pretend, not pretend, but we look in, on paper like a normal PT practice to the insurance mm-hmm. company that we're contracting. And then we show them over time like, hey, we're actually pretty different. And you know, normally a PT will treat four patients in an hour, but we're treating one patient in that hour. And the way that we're operating has to evolve. And we've been able to build those deeper relationships, but it's been a slog and it would not have been feasible for us to be in business or to be at scale without the support of investors. And I think that's really critical because it's taking, you know, the pro-innovation approaches of whether it's VCs or private equity or other funds to accelerate this change. Um, Whereas I know that a lot of independent practitioners would love to take insurance, but they can't take on that financial risk. So um, that's on the insurance side. And I'll just share that, you know, as we launched our national virtual offering um, last month, we were on the board calls with the boards of the PT associations for different States. And they didn't even know what to do with us because virtual is not a thing yet uh, for PT in many States. And so it was so interesting and illuminating and there was a willingness to help um, and a willingness to see this kind of take off. But I think, you know, if mental health is maybe, you know, the first frontier to move forward across state lines and with virtual care, PT, and I imagine other specialties um, like what you're doing, Somi and others, it's where it's going to take a lot longer for um, the industry to catch up. Yeah. So whereas as we're expanding statewide, it's also not stopping us. I mean, there's nothing that's going to stop us from um, increasing access, but it is adding more steps. I mean, we obviously have legal teams for scope of practice because every state is different and setting up the entities and doing all that. Um, but now we also have to make sure um, that our providers are safe and our patients are safe because we do things like IUDs. And I've seen bills about IUDs being abortifacients and that, you know, providers may face uh, criminal charges. We had to get protection for me being the public face and chief medical officer of this company. Um, And we have to check um, guidelines in every state. And so we're very connected with our legal team, particularly as we go into a new market or a new state about IUDs. We take care of ectopic pregnancies, 
you know, and so all of this has recently been brought into this gray zone in a lot of the states that we're in, uh, particularly because we are growing from the Midwest, which is more conservative. And so for us, it hasn't stopped our expansion or access. Um, and we are very lucky to have investors who are very um, supportive of um, female healthcare. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely added more steps and more barriers, unfortunately, but we'll crash through them. We will. We will. That's what we do best as women, right? Um, Okay. Moving to the next one, which I will give to Dr. Rubin and Emma first, and then we'll see how much time we have left. But I would love to know how each of the panelists has interacted and treated patients with sexual trauma. So trauma-informed care is um, really, really important and under-talked about and under-discussed. And my goal would be to actually change all speculums to have a warning label on them that says, if this causes pain, stop immediately and reassess the situation. Is this truly an emergency right now to use this very dangerous and very painful device? We could work on the wording there. But, um, you know, I think we uh, in, oftentimes it is cultural. The culture is to, oh, if this hurts, let me take a smaller speculum and just go faster and get this done because I got to go to the next room because I've got 30 patients to see. And it's an utter disaster because we all, all of us on this call have patients who we know don't go to the gynecologist because of those experiences. Um, we have a student right now who's writing a whole, she got a grant to write a whole research project, which is titled Words Matter. Right, that the words that we as providers say to patients cut like knives. Right, the like Dr. Javed said, the have a glass of wine and relax. The you know, gosh, well, if you don't use it, you lose it. Right, that these horrible things. I always say I could write a a whole um, coffee table book about dumb stuff doctors say to their patients, um, and and it's a problem, right? And so trauma informed care for me is is empowering patients to understand their own bodies, to know that they are empowered to say yes or no to anything that we do, that they're the boss of the exam and they get to decide how far we go to gather data to help them. And when they are, but they have body autonomy and be, I'm privileged because I have time with people. I schedule myself in a way that has time and I'm a sexual medicine doctor. So I don't need to get a pap smear in order to give a checkbox and succeed at my job. And so it's really um, important that we educate general practitioners on that and get them to understand that like, if you have a patient who is having uh, pelvic pain or problems or or any kind of issue, it's okay to just talk with clothes on. Actually, always having cl- I was I have a pants rule in my office. Any big conversations, everyone has to have pants on. It's a rule, right? To you know, when you're half naked in an office and someone's talking to you, it's not an it's not a good relationship, right? We gotta have better care for patients, and so that will pr- require a little bit changing the medical model and also empowering patients to know when they can say stop or know when they can say we're done now. Uh, I'll come back and we'll do this. You know, we can do this again. So trauma-informed care is essential for all of our patients um, and is really not talked about enough. So Emma, I'll let you touch on that one, but I also want to make sure we get to this last question that we have and we have three minutes left. So I'll have you take this one too, double hitter. Um, How do male patients react to seeing female providers for this kind of thing? Yes, I just got some kind of oil in my eye, so um, pardon my eye watering. So trauma-informed care, um, I can't tell you how many clients I actually see that I have to work with to try and get them to the um, doctor because we're having to work on their trauma 
from a gynecologist just saying, buckle up, we're putting this in, right? Um, which is awful. But trauma um, for me, and I'm trauma trained, and that's what I did my dissertation on as well, is um, all about what feels distressing in the body still. So it's not these like huge accidents that happen, like, yes, that's trauma, but what still feels distressing. So we see a lot of people who have religious trauma. So um, sex education trauma, if you weren't informed about your body, there is trauma there, right? Um, so there's distress there that your body's holding on to. And so it's something that honestly, we work full on and um, with on almost every single session because there's trauma there. There's distress still there around sexual health. For guys, um, one of the things that we actually notice is that they prefer to see a female partner because of the judgment and um, what I would say, like the ego that comes with the expectation of being a male um, or a penis owner where um, they're nervous, like what would happen, like what performance or um, that they would have to have if they were with a male pr provider. And so um, what we hear is I would rather be with a female. And actually, when we hire on male providers, we have a hard time actually getting them booked with clients because mm. usually men want to go with women. Um, and so there's a stigma there that really needs to be worked on around men and empathy and um, the stigma that's just there on men and how they approach um uh, working together too, but it's like one of the deepest core needs for so many men is being able to have those vulnerable and intimate conversations with other men, but it's too scary, uh, because of yeah. past experiences. So that's what I'll say there. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I can't believe our time is up already. I feel like we just got started on all of this and there is so much more that we could talk about that we need to talk about. And that, um, those that are attending really need to understand. Um, but thank you, um, Emma, Kareen, um, Dr. Rubin, Dr. Javed, for joining us today. Um, I learned so much and I've received several texts, if you guys notice me looking over at my phone, um, talking from people who are listening that have learned so much as well. So thank you for giving us your time this evening. Thank you for listening to our bonus episode brought to you by the virtual webinar by What's New by New Health. Visit them and attend their webinars at newhealth.com. That's N-Y-O-O health.com. Okay, fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.